You're listening to A Shot in the Arm, a podcast brought to you by Newsdoc Media and Hunavat Global. I'm your host, Ben Plumley, and this is the podcast where we explore and demystify global health and human rights. This week, my interview with Yvette Raphael, the South African HIV, women's rights and science activist. She has some fascinating insights into the ways in which biomedical advances and human rights are colliding. Remember, we're a Shot in the Arm podcast with Ben Plumley. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play Music, Spotify and Stitcher. Like us and subscribe to us. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube at Shot Arm Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and if you like us, give us five stars. So now, my interview with Yvette Raphael. Well, this is an advocate in health and human rights who is absolutely in her prime. She became involved in HIV advocacy after her own diagnosis in 2000. She has led HIV workplace education programs in the safety and security sectors. She's founded a number of community empowerment and support groups, and most recently she's been at the forefront of women's activism in South Africa against gender-based violence. She was an AVAC Fellow in 2014, and she sits on the ad boards of numerous drugs and clinical trials. Yvette, welcome to A Shot in the Arm. Oh, yes. Hi, Ben. Very excited to be with you today, this afternoon, and looking so forward to our interview. So you're in Washington, D.C. at the moment. Um, What are you doing there? Yes, I came to Washington, D.C. for a week of discussion with the family planning activist in Washington with regards to the release of the DEPO results, the ECHO study results, which is a study that's going that's going to tell us if there is a, a link between HIV acquisition and HIV and hormonal contraceptives, not DEPO-Provera, as we initially thought. This is an extremely important piece of research, so I hope you'll be able to keep us posted as and when there are more public results that you can share with us. Yes, uh, very exciting, also very nerve-wracking, but we have three months left. We're looking forward to the results to finally give an answer to women. So you and I hung out fairly extensively at the um, retrovirus conference in the blasted frozen frostlands of Boston back in 2010. But I actually met you a decade earlier when you were a workplace peer counsellor. And, and I know that that's an era, a point of time that was profoundly important for you in your journey as a social justice activist. Could you tell us a bit about that and the impact that time had on you? Oh, yeah. I, I, I was a young person. I say young because I was around 25 years old, just recently started work, uh, found my feet and my life was going everywhere and exciting in customer service, had no clue about HIV and what was going on around in South Africa at that time. And then I was diagnosed with HIV, thrown into the deep end after I disclosed my HIV status and I had to start uh, reading about HIV and AIDS. And that's when I, when I disclosed, I realized that my workplace did not have a workplace policy and I literally had to fight for myself because basically at that time, my boss was like, okay, you've got this now, when are you going to leave? And it was at that time when I needed to start 
looking at what other organizations are doing. And I knew, knew at the time TAC, uh, Napua were doing some stuff, but nothing for the workplace. So I literally wrote my own workplace policy for, for, for my organization, which was then later adapted for the whole police security and legal justice system in South Africa. And which also had a huge impact on the workplace guidelines that Richard Holbrook and I were working on for the Global Business Coalition. Yes, definitely. At that time, like I said, uh, organizations were just starting to understand that people living with HIV needs to be taken care of, do not have to be fired at the time. And there was a huge pullback and a push uh, pushed by workers and a pullback by employers on how to manage the situation. And I think at that time, it was when we brought the whole workplace into the forefront because there was so much that was being done for government workers, people in, in the NGO sector, but the workplace, it was a silent space. I think you remember at that time that people would just feel they would get sick and they would stay home and nobody would talk around it. But then the workplace HIV policies at the time totally helped with making employers understand and also giving employees hope. Do you think anything has changed 20 odd years later? I think yes. Uh, a lot has changed for one workers don't feel i think even in 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 countries where like south africa where we have a huge base of um you know housekeepers and nannies those uh workers even feel safe because the the policies and the constitution of the country pr protects them there's a huge change but i also think people are getting too used to HIV and making it as normal as possible. And some of these cases still continue with it around stigma. We recently had a case where a woman was um, laid off because she told her, her boss that she was HIV positive and the, the um, employer felt that she had just had a baby and how would she infect the baby, which was total ignorance 20 years later. So, I think we just always need to keep our fingers on the ball and make sure that people continuously to abide by these rules because policies do not implement themselves. They need to be watched. People need to guard and make sure people know about it. And uh, employers are actually uh, taken care of or, or looked at and to see if they actually uh, implement those policies. Do you think workplace HIV programs still have their place? most definitely it, it's there's still a need for the workplace policies and for organizations to have a policy to be clear because workplaces are not stagnant you know a leadership change people with personalities change and at at some point you know uh, morals come across a new boss might just feel morally obligated to fire somebody because they have hiv and if you have a policy in place um the workers are protected. So there is still a great need for policies to be in place and also to be workshopped. What we found in South Africa is workers do know the policies are there, but when they're faced with these stigmas and these issues, they do not know how to go about them. So these policies still need to be workshopped. Do you know, on that, <clears throat> on that trip when I actually first met you, Holbrook and I then went to Gaborone in Botswana and met a bank, and they proudly showed off the uh, HIV counselor's office, which was right next to the chief executive's office. 
And the first comment that came out of Holbrook's mouth was, why on earth would you put it next to the CEO's office? And there was a, a an aha moment where the, the head of the HIV program said, ah, oh, that might explain why we've had such a low take, take up of, of testing. So, yeah, I, I, I really think that the workplace remains a, a critically important part of our, our HIV work. The other thing that I find so fascinating about you, and when we uh, were able to spend some significant time together in Boston, you were then a fellow of AVAC, AIDS Vaccine Access Coalition, AVAC. And it was, I was really intrigued at the way that you linked your own HIV status with the need for very assertive prevention and access to biotechnology for women. Could you tell us a bit about that? I think, uh, Ben, one of the most important parts of, for me as an activist, as an, as an advocate for the work that I do is, is my personal story. I always say when people when uh, policymakers see numbers, see statistics, see, see pie charts, I see faces. So I usually make that story mine and I'm able then to translate that into my work. So as, as a person living with HIV, one of the things that I promise, I usually say it's one of the most stupidest promises, I, promises I've ever made, is that I would change the world for people living with HIV. And, as long as I live, I literally told my friends this. I literally had taken on uh, children that uh, when my friends passed on, and that has been how my life has been driven. So the work that I did as a fellow was to work with young women and girls, and I worked in Mpumalanga extensively, changing the lives of young people who felt at the time very hopeless. You know, as we look at HIV prevention, a lot of the focus is, it's not focused, but actually there's no HIV prevention method that a woman can actually say, this is my option. I don't have to, I don't need a man. I don't need to permission of a partner, of a family member or policymaker. I can make this decision myself. And that is what I was fighting for. And that is what I was advocating for with my fellowship is prevention methods that uh, is basically in the hands of women. And at that time, we were looking forward to the, to the gel, remember? Um, the microbicide the, gel. The microbicide gel, which failed, but we continued to push for better option. And we, we're looking forward to the ring, the depovering ring coming out. So the push for women's prevention options. We also have PrEP right now, which I feel is one of the options that can women can use however policymakers i don't think they trust women that much and governments like south africa don't think women uh, black women and women of color and women who are not educated can literally take their own uh you know sexual health in their own hands and prevent hiv so i'm still fighting for that i'm still working with young women and ensuring PrEP needs to be available for women. You know, the narrative right now is PrEP works for intelligent, clever, white gay men. And I think if gay men can take it, so can black women. You know, what, oh, if, what's if, the difference? If gay boys can take it, anybody can take it. Exactly. <laughs> I'm also intrigued in the way you have led from South Africa the U equals U undetectable equals untransmissible, you equals you. And the way you've made this 
sort of one side of the coin and PrEP is the other side of the coin of an effective AIDS response. How important has U equals U been to you in empowering the movement? You know, when the partner study came out with regards to PrEP and and, and treatment as prevention, we know way back since 2006, I was a young person at the time, young woman, but following the signs, I got something dropped for me that if somebody takes their ARVs on time and keep themselves undetectable, what will they transmit? So I, at that time, have been, can I use the word, been bullshitting this super transmission, this super reinfection story has just sounded so like hogwash to me. And I started following the, the science at that time. And, um, you know, when Bruce uh, started working on so openly about uh, on U equals U, I was one of the first people that took it up. And, and, and we had a Facebook uh, contact with Bruce. And I spoke to him about the dignity of black women, the dignity of the fact that black women would feel as if they're no longer dangerous because of the narrative that if I have sex with somebody, I will kill them, you know, and started using that um, that uh, message. However, you know, as I say, messages are usually pushed much easier for people who are educated, people from the West. It makes sense. So I needed to change that narrative and talk about love positive women. And that message made made much more sense when we started talking about you can be in love with the HIV positive woman, you can have children who are negative, and she might, will not infect you if she's uh, uh, undetectable. And that's, that line was much more acceptable because untransmittable and uh, uh, undetectable, untransmittable, it's, it's such a tongue twister. Can you imagine trying to get that across in South Africa? And when you start about talking about love positive women and that we can love and we should be loved and the HIV should not be a barrier and the questions come up, it becomes a discussion and women want to know what are you talking about and you talk about treatment and how treatment is prevention and prevention is treatment. And it just brings out that whole discussion and openness about being HIV positive and also, you know, a better outlook on life. You know, some 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 years ago, it was literally not uh, like not spoken of that a positive person can continue, continue and have kids and continue to love and be loved. And I think you equals you brings that brings our dignity back as people living with HIV. I mean, this is after how many years more than 30 years, myself living with HIV for 19 years. Come on, man. We have to change this. <laughs> so can I just briefly get your thoughts on what is happening with TB in KwaZulu-Natal? Reports, of course, of extremely drug-resistant TB, XDR-TB. And there's been a criticism of the science, criticism of the public health leadership, but how would you respond to the criticism that there's been a failure from communities to embrace and engage TB activism and awareness? Yeah, I, I don't think it's a failure to accept and embrace. I think people are just afraid of something they don't know much about. You know, when you go in and around the areas or around the people where this XDR, the extreme drug-resistant TB is happening and is so huge, you'd see 
young people with masks, people with masks walking around. So obviously the community would be afraid. I don't think enough is being done to educate the communities around why the safety of wearing masks and why this, uh, the importance of uh, you know the science evolving. I think my criticism around the science is I don't think science is doing enough when it comes to TB. TB has been around long and too long for us not to have better drugs. You know, every time I see people who have TB and HIV, and I just see that handful of drugs that they have to consume and take every day and HIV medication, it's almost heartbreaking. So I think we all need to, to pull a little bit. I think uh, the South African government did well by, by procuring some of the new, uh, you know, technologies to to, uh, to diagnose TB, you know, the gene experts have been now bought in South Africa and it, the machinery is used to, to test for TB. But I think much more can be done around treatment and new type of drugs and much easier drugs for people who are, uh, 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 who do have TB. And that is why TB becomes so drug resistant. The whole burden around TB is just too much. Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that is interesting for us as we pursue public-private partnerships is the collaboration led by the TB Alliance looking at a whole new generation, a whole new wave of new drugs. And we haven't had them for 40 years. So so fingers crossed there, we'll need to keep a very close eye on that. Yes, definitely. You are now really a leader of a generation of women social justice activists. How did you get there? Is is this because there is such visibility of HIV in South Africa? What what got you to this place? I, I don't think it's as much the visibility, but also just the vigor of young women who who are in the forefront of fighting uh for for justice and like, let's say human rights. Because even South Africa boasts a very, uh, you know, very good constitution, very good policies. However, like I said, if nobody's educated around these, uh, you know, injustice does happen. And one of the things with around HIV is the fact that it will put you in the forefront if you uh, are somebody who speaks for other people or who takes uh, care of the needs of other people. And that's that's how we got where we are, you know, daily just fighting a system, daily just fighting for the rights of women and for the rights of people living with HIV because it's so easy for, for things just to be swept under the carpet and nobody cares. But, you know, so when you're an activist, you're totally always in the forefront and people would give you a, you know, a heads up or call you when they feel they've been wronged and you'd obviously have to take up the issue regardless of who it is. So I think that's what put us in the forefront. That's what puts me in the forefront. And it it, it is difficult. I always say advocacy is, is, is lonely because you agitate, you irritate, you dismantle, you, you know, you, you, every day you just confront, confront, confront. And there's very little time for you to come up with and get some fresh air or breathe some fresh air because it's so difficult just to fight all the time against uh you know the bs so one of the one of the big bs things that you've been fighting in the last 2 years is gender based violence and you know you have really you've really put yourself out there yes 
you've really put yourself out there in making this a defining issue of South Africa at this point in its in its history. What's going on there? You know, Ben, as you were talking about gender-based violence, I, I immediately get goosebumps because um, two years ago, every day you would wake up, I would wake up and it would be another woman found dead, another woman burned, another girl gone missing, violently killed. And we knew it was this was done by men. And we knew this was done by black men. And we knew that this was done by our brothers. And we needed to get to a point to understand what is going on, what's wrong with the men in South Africa. And that's why we came up with the hashtag men are trash. At the time, the, the US had a, a, a hashtag me too. But with us, it was different. It was not women ex, uh, exposing or coming out with issues where they were, you know, raped or this was just women churning up young girls coming out every day being killed violently young boys being raped killed and you'd ask yourself all right you raped somebody do you have to kill them you raped somebody did you have to stab them so violently you raped somebody's daughter did you have to burn them you know did you have to keep them hostage or in places dark places for so long and Yes, that was a, a very bad time for us as women in South Africa because every day you'd wonder if you would, you know, see the next day. You don't know why men were killing um, women at the time. And that's when we did the men are trash. They did not like the hashtag, but we continued with the work. And I don't want to say it's better, but it brought the issue to the fore. We did the total shutdown march in August with thousands of women in South Africa put everything down, marched to the presidency, marched to the union buildings and said enough is enough. We had 24 demands where that we gave over to the president with timelines and said we wanted a gender summit so that we can start talking around the issues of gender-based violence in South Africa. I think you saw some of the clips where the president was so shocked at some of the crimes at, of how men, brothers, you know, cousins, uncles were killing women. You know, there was one young woman when she lifted up her skirt, you know, it looked like just a mess on her stomach. After raping her, these boys just stabbed her with bottles. So we, that, those were the issues that we were confronting and those were the things that brought us to where we are, where we had the gender summit, we had the conference and we getting to a place where we have a gender national strategic plan in South Africa, where we were, were going to have targets and have activities for all of these departments that are responsible for gender-based violence. And nobody can scapegoat any of the issues and stricter and, and harsher sentences for men who do kill women. You know, those are one of the things that was so painful is that the women who kill their partners in defense of them, you know, for self-defense, got lifetime because it was seen as premeditated murder. And the men who killed kill women would just get five years because it didn't look like premeditated. So what can we do to support your work? I mean, you, you rightly mentioned the link with the Me Too movement here that has a huge has had a huge impact here in the United States and abroad. 
understood that you're dealing with perhaps a, a very different kind, um, a different extreme, uh, if you like, of the issue. But what can we do to support you? One of the good things that came out is how the Me Too movement joined with the um, total shutdown movement joined with the men at trash movements in South Africa and we came together and we started working together so most of the time when you see the hashtags it will be the three hashtags men are trash uh, me too and the total shutdown which means there is some interaction but I think what we can do more is as a community, as a global community, when we see these scourges, and you see there's an intersection, what R. Kelly did in the US is the same as some of the huge artists, what they are doing with young women in South Africa. So that, uh, you know, keeping tabs and also supporting each other when, when the issues comes up, I think that is important. I'm on sensitive ground here, but I, I, I do just want to raise this with, with you. One of the criticisms of the men are trash hashtag is that it basically lumped all men together in one group. How did you respond to that criticism? And, and, and what do you say to people that are saying, you know, oh, you're, you're just dismissing half of the population? Oh, yeah, we get to the exciting part. It's not dangerous. <laughs> it's how you agitate. When you get men to start talking about it. And so out of that men are trash came, a hashtag and a movement called not in my name. So men are saying, you're not going to kill a woman in my name. You're not going to kill a lesbian in my name. You're not going to kill a young person in my name. So we did agitate and we got the right um, you know, reaction. But what I want you to do, Ben, if you have time, is to look look up for the uh, documentary called The People Versus Patriarchy, and you will understand how deeply interested uh, entrenched patriarchy is to what was happening to women in South Africa because men felt entitled, men felt emasculated because of the current economic status in South Africa. Men are not working. Women seem to look like we are empowered and that looks like a threat for patriarchy and for men who cannot, you know, exert themselves. So the men who are still fighting against the men are trash are very few, but we're getting to that discussion where men understand. When we say men are trash, we say men are trash so that you can identify or see yourself different from the men who are doing that. It's to agitate. It's not really to say all men is, are, are trash. And we will have a link to the documentary uh, on the blog and the website that uh, goes with this podcast. Very powerful documentary. And I think every single person needs to watch that because it shows just how nuanced the issue around patriarchy is and power and privilege, how nuanced it is and how South African men were raised and how men are raised globally. There's a, there's a part in the documentary where some gentleman in, in, a, in a parliament somewhere in Europe says, women can't get paid the same as we are because they're weaker, they're smaller, they're not strong as us. So that shows just how much patriarchy is a system that I say we need to smash one by one, little by little, day by day, it will get smashed. And you know you have an ally in Ringwood, Hampshire, yes! in one of my, I suppose, most devoted, in air quotes, followers, Janet Plumley, whose view, of course, is that all men are stupid <laughs> and that a very significant group of women are stupid too and that you're not one of them. <laughs> no, definitely, you know, she's my shiro. She, I, I'm a great follower of her too. And I love some of the things that she say. Oh, my word. So. 
what's next for you? You're you're here in Washington. You're going to see the re- results of uh, some research on HIV and uh, contraceptives, but you're also going to the Smithsonian and see the outbreak epidemics in a connected world exhibition. And that's something that actually uh, a shot in the arm has a little bit of a relationship to because the producer, Eric Espera of Newsdoc Media, and you work together on a photo that is in that exhibition. And that photograph is of you. Yes, very exciting. Very, I think, I think Eric came into my life for just for that moment. That picture is iconic. That picture is big. And I, I, I don't know how he managed to take that picture, but yes, it's in the Smithsonian, it's my story, it's Eric's work, and we we magic together. You know, it's such a special moment. I'm from a very small village, and uh, I keep telling uh, Eric he should visit with me. Very small village, and it's so small that it does not even, it's not even on Google Maps. So from that small village to be featured in the Smithsonian for a whole year as a, as a, as a, uh, my exhibition and as a person from that community, it's very, very big. It's very deep. It's very personal. It's very hard. I just, I just, it's just way too much, but I guess I would have to go and go and see how my voices or my story is changing it for women uh, globally. So I'm, I'm excited, but I'm also excited about other HIV prevention methods, long acting, you know, more than one option for women, contraceptives and HIV prevention. I'm looking forward to a vaccine. I'm looking forward to a world without HIV, but not the kind of discussions that are currently happening. I'm just looking forward for a time where we would say we are seeing new incidents going down. And and just to put a plug for Newsdoc Media, you two are also working on a documentary documenting the lives of a number of activists over the years as they go to international conferences and how they develop. And I remember at the oh the Amsterdam conference, no, not the Amsterdam conference. I remember at the Durban conference, I got a call from UNAIDS who told me that there was a filmmaker had just barged into a meeting with the executive director and um, community leaders. And apparently I knew this filmmaker. Would I please ask him to leave? <laughs> yes, I think that's one of the things that the perks of following activists, especially powerful activists, of South Africa is that you get to go where nobody wants to go. You get to touch and get to hear and say that nobody wants to hear and say. And that is the power of activism at that stage. And the AIDS conference is one such place where we feel we can do and say things that nobody wants to say. So, Yvette Raphael, thank you so much for giving up your what is a DC afternoon, having just flown in from Johannesburg. Thank you so much for being with us and thank you for being a shot in the arm. Uh, Thank you for having me and it was so much fun. I can do this every time and all the time. Are you going to invite me again? Of course. (laughs) I imagine you're going to be a very regular commentator. This week... We've been spending a lot of time poring over reports. And no, I'm not talking about that one, the Mueller report into conspiracy and obstruction. No, I'm talking about what seems to be a daily stream of medical announcements, of breathtaking advances. For example, 
the first US patients had been treated with CRISPR as human gene editing trials get started. CRISPR, you recall, is clustered, regularly interspaced, short, palindromic repeats. CRISPR. In theory, it allows us to make very precise changes to DNA, and it's going to have huge implications for the way we treat diseases. You'll also recall the controversy of that researcher in China who claimed to use the CRISPR technique to create HIV-free babies. Well, we'll come back to CRISPR a fair amount in a Shot in the Arm podcast. There have also been some advances in the treatment of Crohn's disease announced this week. We have a new biofilm of probiotics that are supposed to ease or erase the so-called bad bacteria and fungi in the intestines. There's also been stem cell transplant research that is potentially going to cure Crohn's. This is where you basically knock out the existing immune system through the use of chemotherapy. And then what you do is infuse the patient with their own stem cells in a hope to restart a much healthier, newer immune system. It feels a bit medieval, but of course, we're at the start of understanding our immune system, and there's going to be much more research coming out in future years. But talk of medieval, what I really wanted to focus on was the extraordinary, seemingly barbaric news announced in Nature magazine, where the heads of pigs killed in slaughterhouses were then revived in laboratories a few hours later, and according to NPR, they showed a surprising amount of cellular function, either preserved or restored. The research is aimed to help us understand how better to treat stroke and Alzheimer's. But the news was received as mind-blowing, as shocking. Ethicists were staggered. Cara Ramos of the National Institutes of Neurology Disorders and Strokes said that the science was so new we needed to think proactively about its ethical implications so that we can responsibly shape how this science moves forward. She's absolutely right. But the suggestion that this research has somehow caught everyone by surprise or wasn't thought through properly in advance is just plain wrong. This research was developed by the NIH's Brain Institute. It's had thorough ethics committee review and approval. The research team included the Yale bioethicist Stephen Latham. My point is that we really have to do better than sensationalising this important research and issues like it. Questions about what is life, what is not life, when are we alive, when are we not alive? Well, these are much more of the domain of metaphysics than biophysics. We really have to find ways to make sure we are educated and have the information to make evidence-informed and rights-based decisions. And we need to use speculative fiction, new series on Hulu, Netflix or HBO, documentaries, essays, yes, even podcasts like this to help us. By the way, and I think you'll have noticed this, I think humour can help us. It can help us clear the fog and enable us to see things much more distinctly. And evidently, the authors of a commentary that was published in Nature magazine along with the research article thought the same. They referred to a line from the 1987 The Princess Bride film, and I'll, I'll end with this quote today. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. Our thanks to Yvette Raphael. Thanks also to Eric Espera, our producer from Newsdoc Media. Thanks also for absolutely no reason at all to the Pet Shop Boys, www.petshopboys.co.uk. 
We are a Shot in the Arm podcast. You can find us at iTunes, Google Play Music, Spotify and Stitcher. And you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook and YouTube at Shot Arm Podcast. Like us. And if you do, give us five stars. Have a great week.